Welcome to the New School at Commonweal. The following presentation is of a lecture that Michael Lerner gave at Sophia University in Palo Alto, California. Unfortunately, the audio quality is not what we had expected and has a great deal of noise in it. However, the quality of the presentation is such that we wanted to bring it to you anyway. The noise has been filtered to a great degree. We hope you enjoy this presentation from the New School at Commonweal. Thank you for listening. Hi. Hello. Hi. 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 Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me now? Well, I'm glad to be here. And uh, you guys look kind of cool. <laughs> so we should be able to be on. Um, I'm here to talk about the relationship between our wounds and the wounds of the earth. And um, I wonder, um, without saying what it is, how many of you have a sense that right now in your life, that you're struggling with something, doesn't matter what, that causes you some ongoing level of suffering in your life. Just out of curiosity. Oh no. (laughs) 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 Okay. So, what are your strategies for dealing with that thing, whatever it is, that's causing you suffering? Do you push it away? Do you try to ignore it? Or do you move into it and toward it to see what it has to offer? All of the above. All of the above. <laughs> All of the above. This sounds like a good response. Anybody else? Okay. One is enough. Um, wounds are an interesting thing. Um, I'm 69 years old and I'm still struggling. I have not figured it out. And um, and yet, the things I've struggled with have taught me more than the things I've figured out. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting truth about life. You know, when you ask yourself, which parts of your life have you learned the most from, the easy parts or the hard parts? Who's learned more from the easy parts? Just out of Who's learned more from the hard parts? We're designed that way, you know? As human beings, we're designed that way. We're designed to learn from the hard parts. And when you think about that, that's a really ancient teaching, right? You go back to Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Has anybody read Patanjali's Yoga Sutras? The first sutra in the second book says roughly this. It says, the acceptance of suffering as an aid to purification, the study of deep wisdom teachings, and complete surrender to the divine force in each of us. These three things are yoga in practice. I said that again. 
the acceptance of suffering as an aid to spiritual growth. The study of great wisdom teachings, wherever you find them, and complete surrender to that which, that source of light, that source of the divine within each of us. These three things are yoga and practice. Notice he doesn't say asanas, pranayama, you know, breathing practices, stretching practices. So you can understand why the study of wisdom teachings and the surrender to the divine will make it into the big three. But why would the acceptance of suffering make it into the big three if it wasn't a really profound teaching? What is the first noble truth of Buddhism? You guys should know this. Yeah, suffering exists. And then the rest of it is about finding the noble path that leads beyond suffering. But suffering exists. You know, at the base of yoga, you know, acceptance of suffering. First noble principle of, of the Buddha's teaching, suffering exists. Why was the Christ called a man of suffering and acquainted with grief? You know? Why does the spiritual song written in the voice of the Christ say, if somehow you could pack up your sorrows and give them all to me, you would lose them because I know how to use them. <laughs> give them all to me. That sense that the Christ understood how to use our suffering, just as the Buddha understood it, just as Patanjali understood it. So when in, it took me a long time to figure this out, maybe you'll get it faster than I do, um, but when in your life you discover that precisely what you're suffering from most is the, the point at which spiritual growth is most possible, that's a really big deal. So how far back does that teaching go? How many of you have studied shamanism? Yeah, quite a few of you have studied shamanism. So what is the shamanic tradition? The shamanic tradition, if you think about it, who were the shamans? They were the women and men, women and men, in every tribe, original culture, who had a profound life-threatening illness. And that illness took them to the edge of death. And while they were there, they realized that if they were covered, they wanted to come back and accompany others on this journey, right? That, they, it became clear to them that that was their reason for being. Now, did they think that physical recovery was the point of the whole thing? No, they did not. They felt that when you were faced with a serious illness, that what you wanted to avoid at all costs was soul loss. You wanted to not lose connection with the soul. And so their purpose in accompanying people, they didn't know whether they'd live or die, but their purpose in accompanying people as the healers of their tribe was to enable them to stay connected with their soul. Right? So again and again, and when you think about it, in the shamanic tradition, the shamans are found in every original people around the world. There's only one other thing that's found in every original people around the world, and that is the incest taboo. So the shamanic experience and the incest taboo are built on the bedrock of what it means to be human. Right? So for 26 years, I've been leading week-long retreats for people with cancer of commonweal. And let me say a word about Commonweal, just so you know what it is, and then I'll talk a little about the cancer health program. So, 36 years ago, I was stumbling around on the Bolinas Mesa one day, which is a little town on the coast um, 
uh, just north of San Francisco, and I looked out at these old RCA global uh, transmitter buildings, an old RCA transmitter center where communications between east and west began. And I had what I can only describe as a vision of creating a center for personal and planetary healing in these old RCA transmitter buildings. It was a really crazy idea, you know. But I was 33 years old and I was too young and dumb to know that it wasn't possible, you know. And forgive me, those of you who are 30 or 33, but I was still too young and dumb to figure out that this wasn't possible. So being young and dumb, I decided to try it, and somehow it worked out. You know, if anybody had come to me at this point in my life and said they wanted to do something like that, I would warn them against it. But for the last uh, 36 years, I've been married to this piece of land called Commonweal, and working on creating the Center for Personal and Planetary Healing that this 33-year-old guy had this vision about. And uh, so Commonweal is kind of unlike most other nonprofits. Most other nonprofits have a single purpose, like helping breast cancer patients or helping troubled kids or whatever. Commonweal is really about, it's not a spiritual center, it's not an intentional community. It's a place to do good work in the service of healing ourselves and healing the earth. And so we don't think we're a big deal. Um, we, uh, our model, sort of our business model, is that we have 12 program directors and each of them is outstanding at what they do. They have to raise their own money and they get a lot of freedom to do what they want in their programs. So we do programs in four major areas, healing ourselves and healing the earth. And those are healing, learning, earth care, and justice. Those are the four things we work on, healing, learning, earth care, and justice. And just to give you a sense of it, how many of you have heard of Rachel Naomi Remen? Is that a name? Yeah, a number of you have. So she is our medical director and the director of the Institute for Study of Health and, of Health and Illness at Commonwealth. And her program called The Healer's Art, which started at UCSF Medical School in San Francisco, is now taught in 75 medical schools around the world. So that's an example of one of our programs. David Steinhardt, you've never heard of, he runs our juvenile justice program. Our work actually started with juvenile justice. It was our earliest program. And David is the most influential advocate in the state of California for reforming the juvenile justice system and getting low-income kids of color out of the youth prisons in California. And he's been doing it at Commonwealth for the last 20 years. Uh, I've been working for 26 years. I mentioned on the Cancer Health Program, uh, I'll just mention two others. Um, one is called the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, which is an international network of patients, uh, health professionals, and um, patient advocates uh, who explore the impact of chemicals and other environmental factors on human health. So we're very concerned about all the different ways, and we'll probably talk more about this, in which chemicals and other environmental factors are affecting all of our health. We all carry 800, 1,000 different chemicals in our bodies. Some of them are endocrine disruptors. They have a huge effect on fetal development and are related to learning disabilities, infertility, asthma, cancer, birth defects, um, Parkinson's disease, you know, you name it, 100 different diseases and disorders. So we've been a big, uh, not a big, we've been a, a part of 
the global environmental health and justice program so that our personal healing work is emblemized by the cancer health program and Rachel's work with physicians and our environmental work is emblemized by the collaborative on health and the environment and have done some other programs like it and the last one that I'll mention and I'm just giving you a sense of what the place is like is called the new school at Commonweal and this is a really good thing if you want to go on commonweal.org and go to the new school and we've done like 130 uh, events over the last four years where we have conversations with thought and action leaders, uh, really interesting people. Um, Ram Dass, W.S. Merwin, Terry Tempest Williams, just a lot of very interesting different folks. So you got the feeling. It's like a community. It isn't spiritual, it isn't intentional, it's a place to do good work in the world. It is supremely practical, and that's what we do. So that's where this human being comes from, is that I've spent the last 36 years of my life uh, working at this place that I was too stupid not to start uh, when uh, the opportunity came up. So, full stop. I'm going to read some poems from time to time, just so I don't bore you to tears. <laughs> Here's a poem. I had dinner with Olga and some of your other, other really super nice faculty. But this poem to me emblemized, is an emblem of how I see our work at Commonweal. And in fact, how I see spiritual life in a way that makes sense to me. It's by a woman named Naomi Shihab Nye. Does anybody know her work? Okay, it's called Famous. The river is famous to the fish. The loud voice is famous to silence, which knew it would inherit the earth before anybody says so. The cat sleeping on the fence is famous to the birds watching him from the birdhouse. The tear is famous briefly to the cheek. The boot is famous to the earth, more famous than the dress shoe, which is famous only to floors. The bent photograph is famous to the one who carries it, and not at all famous to the one who is pictured. I want to be famous to shuffling men who smile while crossing streets, sticky children in grocery lines, famous as the one who smiled back. I want to be famous in the way a bully is famous or a buttonhole, not because it did anything spectacular, but because it never forgot what it could do. See, that's my kind of spirituality, if you want to call it that. It's kind of a buttonhole theology. <laughs> it's not about being famous. It's not about doing some big deal thing. It's just about not forgetting what you can do. You might ask yourself, what is it in yourself? What's your buttonhole? What is it that you shouldn't forget? And notice you don't have to be really good to do this, because I'm not a particularly good person. You don't have to be enlightened to do this, because I'm certainly not an enlightened person. You just have to know how to be useful. You know, Figure out something that's useful does not have to be a big deal. 
So I talked a little bit about our personal homes and how our suffering. You know, Carl Jung said that consciousness is only one through suffering. Again, that same idea that we've heard about from uh, yoga, from Buddhism, from the Christian tradition. But what about the what about the ones of the earth? You know, I've spent 36 years thinking about this, and I still don't have a straight, so I have to keep talking about it and hope that one day one of you guys will straighten me out. But you know the story I'm about to tell you, but I'll tell it in sort of four-part harmony for a few minutes. We live in an age of extinctions. This is scientifically known. This is the sixth great spasm of extinctions in the history of the Earth. We are driving biodiversity to sort of the fullness of life back to the lowest level since the end of the age of dinosaurs. Now, when E.O. Wilson, the great naturalist, first talked about this age of extinctions about 20 years ago, he said there were four drivers, major drivers, of this age of extinction. Climate change, the depletion of the ozone layer, toxic chemicals, and the destruction of habitat. You could add invasive species if you wanted. But those were the four or five main drivers. Climate change, ozone depletion, toxic chemicals, habitat destruction, invasive species. Then about, I think that was maybe 20 years ago, he said that, then along came Bill Joy, who was the chief scientist at Sun Microsystems down here in Silicon Valley. He wrote an article for Wired Magazine, an amazing article called The Future Doesn't Need Us. And what he said was that we were moving from an age of weapons of mass destruction to an age of technologies of mass destruction. So an example of weapons of mass destruction obviously would be nuclear bombs. Uh, and nuclear bombs require a huge industrial uh, footprint to create. You have to have a very advanced industrial structure. It's very expensive to build nuclear bombs. Technologies of mass destruction, he said, included biotechnology, nanotechnology, and robotics. So what he meant by this is that these technologies of mass destruction could reach the point where they multiplied out of control, that once you let them loose in the environment, you couldn't stop them. So for example, a really good example of that is genetically modified organisms, whether they be corn or fish or something like that, that we engineer these things and we put them in the environment, they keep multiplying, so they can be a technology of mass destruction. Right? We're told that they're all benign and it's all going to be wonderful, but it turns out uh, that you know many of them are quite problematic. Nanotechnology hasn't reached as biotechnology as the self-assembly stage yet, but we are now being filled with nanotech particles that are in our cosmetics and all kinds of other stuff that, again, our organisms have no biological history of knowing how to deal with any more than they deal with the uh, 80,000 toxic chemicals in widespread use. And robotics, which is the third, again, it hasn't reached the point of self-assembly yet, 
But robotics are taking over in industrial processes all over the world and wiping out jobs for thousands and millions of people and will cause a crisis in China where they're developing robotics because their workforce aren't going to have things to do, you know, among many other places. So the point is the difference between the weapons of mass destruction and the technologies of mass destruction is that the technologies of mass destruction do not require a large industrial base to create. They require a very small industrial base to create. And they can be cooked up in somebody's garage, and they tend to be pure information. So you can cook this thing up and put the formula for it on a website, and you know anybody can make it following the cookbook that you just put out. So what I'm saying is that in addition to climate change, ozone depletion, toxic chemicals, habitat destruction, and invasive species, you have this movement from weapons of mass destruction to technologies of mass destruction. And we haven't even mentioned the challenge of what happens in a global capitalist system, and I don't use capitalist in a disparaging way, but just in a descriptive way, with the huge income disparities that, that keep growing greater. I mean, if you look at the last 20 years in the United States, uh, there actually has been income loss for most people. And uh, even the millionaires, uh, or the people up to like 10 million, haven't made all that much more. It's the billionaires who have had this huge increase in the percentage of what of ownership in the United States that they have. So we have a reality today where most young people like you, you know, are simply they don't have you don't have anywhere near the resources that I had when I was your age. And the potential for earning is extremely hard. The job market is extremely hard. And so you guys are having to make up a way of being in the world that's fundamentally different. You know, it's fundamentally different. So think about some of the creative things that young people are doing now, like the DIY movement, do-it-yourself movement, and the maker culture and the maker movement. These are people, friends of mine, who are recognizing that they may not have anywhere near as much money as other people do, but that doesn't mean that they can't lead, lead rich, creative lives. And so they are exploring all kinds of interesting ways to live on very little and to make stuff and to do away with the need for specialists whenever they can and to explore. And for me, this generation for me is the generation I've been waiting for because I was a hippie in the 60s and 70s. I taught when I taught at Yale, I taught the course on the counterculture. And I had also, there were all these generations in between that were basically extremely materialist and I didn't. You know, I respected them, but I didn't really have all that much of a sense of resonance. But along comes the DIY movement and the maker movement. I think, whoa, here's a group of people who, like me, were not terribly materialist in their focus and are trying to figure out how to have a meaningful life with not a lot of money. So for me, there's a tremendous sense of resonance with this uh, creativity that is meeting the huge challenges that young people are facing in the United States right now. And I just have a sense that, uh, that this uh, community, this generation of people, have a huge amount to offer 
because in many respects they've advanced far beyond where we were in the 60s and 70s in being much more practical, much less ideological, and much more interested in actually doing stuff that makes a difference. So after you know Katrina, a whole bunch of people moved down to New Orleans to rebuild buildings. After the hurricanes in New York, people moved into the devastated areas to build, you know, rebuild houses. A lot of people show up at the Commonwealth Gardening Regenerative Design Institute to learn permaculture gardening. There's this whole interest which is very profound in actually developing skills, so it's called also in the new economic theory, it's called the Great Reskilling Movement. And this reskilling movement, what does it mean? It means you figure out how, you know, when when the huge shocks that are very likely to continue to hit us hit, you want to be able to look to live. You want to be able to survive. You want to have a set of skills that enable you to live in difficult times. Because guess what? You're living in difficult times already. The jobs are scarce, the money is scarce. So, you know, how do you do it? And I think that that impulse toward learning old skills and new technology-based skills, you know, home repair, self-health care, you know, you know, metalworking, uh, computer stuff, and so on and so forth, people are trying to figure out how to put this stuff together in ways that enable you to not only survive, but lead rich personal lives. Anyway, I got carried away with that because I was talking about this age of extinctions and then what Bill Joy added to that in terms of the movement from weapons to technologies of mass destruction. Um, and so when you think about what all this means, along with income disparities, wars, conflict, all the other stuff, these are the wounds of the earth, right? These are the wounds of the planet. These are the wounds of humanity. These are the wounds of the planet as a whole. So what does it mean for the future? Uh, well, there was a very interesting uh, guy who was uh, the uh, James McNeil. He was the secretary to the Brundtland Commission, which wrote the famous Brundtland Report, named after the Swedish prime minister, um, and created the term sustainability. And um, that was in the early 70s. And he came to a conference at Commonwealth, and he said something I never forgot. He said that heuristically, he found it useful to talk about four possible futures. The first was business as usual, that somehow we just continue to do what we do. The second is that we would descend into chaos. The third is that we would achieve sustainability. And the fourth is that we would become artificial people on an artificial planet. So let me repeat those. The first was business as usual. The second was descent into chaos. The third was that somehow we would create a sustainable world. And the fourth was that we'd become artificial people on an artificial planet. Well, the way I look at it, it isn't going to be one of those futures or another. It's actually a combination of all four, and the struggle is going to be over what proportion each of them is. So clearly, business as usual continues. You look around you, and it doesn't look like it's changed all that. The world goes on, business as usual. Clearly, we notice the descent into chaos in all kinds of areas around the world, you know, uh, in failed states, but also within the United States. There's all kinds of ways that we notice that this age of extinctions and all the stuff that's 
hurting us and hurting all life on Earth. There's a descent into chaos, no question about it. The third is that we actually are moving towards sustainability in a bunch of ways. You know, you know, gasoline, cars that use less gasoline or run on electric, you know, solar, all kinds of things. There are movements, you know, the growth of the organic food movement. There's all kinds of things that are moving towards sustainability. And the fourth, we are clearly becoming artificial people on an artificial planet. So, you know, I had a heart attack 10 years ago. I have a stent in my heart. I have hearing aids. You know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm artificially enhanced, you know. And, you know, probably many of you are artificially enhanced in one way or another, you know. So, clearly, we're becoming artificial people on an artificial planet. But the interesting point is that the sustainable future, which is the best, is actually the most artificial of all. That's the interesting point, because if you think about it, the other three, business as usual, descent into chaos, and becoming artificial people on an artificial planet, they don't require any effort on our part. That just happens. But sustainability requires effort on our part, and what it's like, in this Rene DuBose, great Rockefeller uh, University scientist, said this, who said, our best fate for the earth is to cultivate it like a garden. And a garden is a partnership of artifice and nature. In other words, a garden does not occur by itself. You know, what is a garden? It is a place where there is a partnership. And so it is artifice. So you could say it's artificial people on an artificial planet, but it's artifice is a very high art, as opposed to just letting it all roll down to being artificial in some, you know, uh, degraded way. So those, I think, are just a, it's a useful mnemonic or useful heuristic device for thinking about the future. One other heuristic device that I think is really useful is recognizing the existence, and you can look this up in Wikipedia, it's a great thing to know about, and it will show people how hip you are. How many people have heard about wicked problems? Does anybody know about wicked Yeah, one person knows about wicked problems, good. So wicked problems is a concept that actually grew from a philosopher who lived in Molinas named C. West Trishman. He was a philosopher and systems scientist. And a wicked problem is a term used in social planning describing problems that are difficult or impossible to solve because they involve incomplete, contradictory, and changing requirements. And those are different from problems like a problem in math or physics or something like that. That's a disciplined problem that if you apply yourself, you may be able to solve it. But a wicked problem is a problem, again, in social planning or in real life in the social world where take climate change, take ozone depletion, take toxic chemicals, take invasive species, you name it, uh, it's really hard to solve. You know, let me just give you one example of a wicked problem. How many people here have cell phones? <laughs> right? Okay. How many of you are concerned with the impact of electromagnetic fields on health? Right? So we all love our cell phones, right? But the science on what we are filling, you know, the environment with is really something else. And, you know, I've followed the literature on toxic chemicals for 20 years, but the EMF literature is growing very, very fast, you know? 
So it's a wicked problem, right? On the one hand, we all want our cell phones, our tablets, our you know Wi-Fi connections, and everything else, uh, and and it's made a huge contribution. And imagine trying to live without it. On the other hand, think about the electromagnetic fields. That's an example of a wicked problem. You know, it's very difficult to solve. So what I'm saying is that if we look at this age of extinctions that we're living in, where we're just destroying the whole fabric of life on Earth with climate change, ozone depletion, toxic chemicals, habitat destruction, weapons of mass destruction, technologies of mass destruction, income disparities, war conflict, so on and so forth, we know we're wounding the Earth. We know the wounds are very profound, and these wounds are caused by wicked problems. So even if we wanted to solve the wicked problems, and even if we had the consciousness to try to solve the wicked problems, they're really, really, really difficult to solve. You know? I mean, anybody tells you that all we need to do is all get spiritual together and we'll solve these problems, forget it. It's a deeply naive kind of view about the world. I'm sorry to say that, but it's a profoundly naive point of view about the world. So how do we live with it? How do we think about it? How do we move beyond these wicked problems that seem so intractable and overpowering? And above all, how do you do it without becoming cynical or despairing? How many of you feel, just out of curiosity, just a deep sense of despair about what's happening to the earth, just out of curiosity? Yeah. And how many of you feel a deep sense of grief about what's happening to the earth? Yeah. So, so many of us are living with this acute sense of grief and despair that we are a part of this, that, that we're, we're complicit in it, that we can't move, we can't get on our cell phone, we can't eat, we can't drive our car without contributing to this destruction. We don't want to contribute to the destruction, but we're complicit in it, and we don't see a way out of it. So one of the things that I've asked about for 36 years is this. What is the relationship between our personal wants and these planetary ones? What can we learn from our personal wounds that might help us with the planetary wounds? And what can we learn from the planetary wounds that might help us with the personal wounds? And I'm not going to tell you the answer to that, but I'm going to tell you some of the things, I'm going to share with you some of the thoughts I've had. So the first thing we know from, and I know this so deep in my gut from doing I've co-led the Commonweal Cancer Health Program, which is week-long retreats for people with cancer for 26 years. And I've done 170 of these week-long retreats in Commonweal, and another 20 or so on the East Coast. So 190 or so weeks of my life, which is what, three going on four years, is, um, has been spent living with small groups of people with cancer. So who are these people? They're mostly women. They mostly have breast cancer. Many of them have metastatic, that's recurring breast cancer, which can't be cured. And quite a number are young women with metastatic breast cancer who are trying to figure out how to say goodbye to their young children. Right. So that's the world I've lived in for a really long time. Right? And I've learned some things from these people. They've learned much more from them than I ever taught them. 
But one thing I've learned is that personal transformation, even in the face of a life-threatening illness, is possible. That people can profoundly transform. Now, you don't have to call it spiritual. In fact, we were talking about this at dinner. I asked Christine Brooks, one of your faculty members, that I actually asked the table, but I said, uh, which of you believe that a spiritual approach to life is superior to a secular approach? And Christine said, not me. And I said, I agree with you. Because to me, whether you label yourself spiritual or label yourself secular, it doesn't make any difference. What matters is whether you figured out how to be reasonably kind to other people, whether you figured out what your buttonhole is, how to be useful, how to be of service in some way, uh, whether you figured out how to be kind with the people that are in your family who can drive you nuts, right? Uh, whether, you know, you've just figured out how to walk through this world, because you're going to do harm, but to do as little harm as you can. And um, whether you figured out how you can contribute to your family, your community, how you can be part of one of the movements that are trying to move us toward a better world, that's what matters. And this question of whether you define yourself as spiritual or secular, to me it doesn't make any difference at all. It doesn't matter to me what goes on behind your eyes. What matters to me is what the work of your head and heart and hands are in the world. You know, I'll tell you that at Commonweal, we don't, we're not a spiritual organization. We just have a place. You have to be really good at what you do. You know, and you have to be on a good day kind and on a bad day civil. Those are the two things. You know, that we ask that you be super good at what you do and that you be kind when you can and civil when you can't be kind. You know. And then if you meet those criteria and are exceptionally good at what you do, you're welcome to work with us. You know, that's, we don't have any spiritual calling card that people have to flash when they walk in the door. <laughs> so we know that personal, from our personal wounds, we know that personal transformation is possible. We know that personal transformation can lead to profound behavioral change. So think about Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the greatest inventions of modern society. Only works for about one in 10 alcoholics, but for the people it works for, it completely transforms their life. I mean, alcoholism, you know, when AA was started, alcoholism was considered an incurable disease. And along comes AA, and all of a sudden, there are a whole bunch of recovering alcoholics, an amazing, amazing experience. So we know all kinds of things like AA or a spiritual or religious life or something else can lead to profound behavioral change. We know that these changes are best sustained in groups or communities, so it's best not to try to do profound change alone. It's best to be part of a community, religious, spiritual, AA, whatever it is, that sustains you. That sustains you because, uh, you know, as Jung once said to uh, the founder of AA, what was his name, Bill? Bill what? Yeah. He said, you know, the only way I know to recover from an addiction is with a greater addiction. And so the addiction he had in mind about alcoholism was God, you know. And so, um, so we are sustained in these changes um, in groups and communities of some kind. 
And the fourth thing we know about these changes, uh, about this, you know, healing, is that it's very personal. It starts, if you will, at a grassroots level or with us one by one. And it's probably not irrelevant that it starts at a level that it's very hard for corporations to buy. In other words, it's hard for corporations which can buy politicians, they can buy judges, they can buy, you know, um, the advertising, they can shape our perception of the world in so many ways. But it's really kind of hard for them to buy our inner life, you know. They can influence it by creating the images that we run in our heads. But we have a chance in our personal life to escape corporate culture. And so there's a way at which uh, these changes tend to start at the grassroots for us. So I'm going to give you just three examples of these changes. And the first one will be personal, and the second one will be global, and the third one I'm going to come back to the DIY movement. Um, so the first example, for the last 40 years, I've participated in the my, I've, I participated in two major movements. One was the mind, body, spirit, health movement, and the other was the environmental health and justice movement. And so the mind, body, spirit, health movement, when I moved out to Bolinas in 1972, people were reading Adele Davis, and you know that was the extent of nutritional knowledge at that time. When I look at it today, um, integrative medicine, holistic health, functional medicine, all those things, they're in major universities all around the country, and they are the subject of really serious research. And, you know, in the behavioral sciences, in the nutritional sciences, you know, there's a huge body of this stuff, and man, this movement is coming. And it isn't finished yet, but, um, if you look within that at the relationship of heart disease, diabetes, obesity, metabolic syndrome, breast, prostate, and colon cancer, all of those are diminished if you exercise, have meaningful stress reduction, have some kind of group support, and combine that with a low animal fat natural foods diet. In other words, we know for a fact that these things work. Well, if you look at what's happened in the culture, you know, there are yoga studios on every corner. There are fitness clubs on every corner. The organic food industry is the fastest growing segment of the whole food industry in the United States. So this was something that corporations couldn't stop. They didn't want it to happen because their profit margins are lower, you know, in general, on, on uh, whole foods as opposed to uh, processed foods. But they couldn't stop this movement. They couldn't stop this growing awareness that guess what? Physical, emotional, mental, spiritual health matters. And if you do this kind of stuff, there's a very good chance that you're gonna live a longer, better life, you know? So, um, so uh, this movement toward healthier lifestyles is an example of healing ourselves in a way that helps heal the planet, because guess what? The diet and exercise and stress reduction that are good for us at a personal level at a collective level are good for the planet. At a collective level is good for the planet. So this personal healing is helping at a planetary level in very fundamental ways and people are making those linkages. So that's the first example. The second example, you know, in the first part of this conversation, I told you about the age of extinction and all the bad stuff that's going on. But let me tell you, at a global level, if you look at it, in the past 500 years, what's happened to humanity? 
So we've moved from 500 years, which is just a tiny fragment of time, right? Only one quarter of the time since the beginning of Christianity, only 10% of the time since the beginning of Judaism, just as an example. In the past 500 years, what's happened in the world? We've moved from monarchies to democracy, from slavery to freedom. We've had the women's rights movement, the labor rights movement, the human rights movement, the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, the animal rights movement, a whole global effort to end poverty, a strong anti-war movement, an incredibly strong environmental movement. And so there's been this transformation over only 500 years, this tiny sliver of human consciousness and history in what we regard as a righteous way to live together as human beings, you know? 500 years ago, it was just fine to have slaves. 500 years ago, monarchies were pretty much the only form of government. 500 years ago, women were property. You know, labor was like almost slavery. You know, human rights, who heard of it? Civil rights? No such thing, you know? Gay rights? Give me a break. Nobody would have even thought about it, you know? Animal rights? Are you crazy? You know? And yet all these things, and notice how they've accelerated. So it's not just that they all happened over 500 years, but most of the things that I've mentioned have happened in the last 50 years, right? So what's going on? There's this tremendous wounding of the earth that's going on, and there's this tremendous growth in global consciousness, right? Well, are those separate, or are they connected? Well, what did we learn about personal wounds, right? The shamanic experience and the bedrock of what it means to be a human being. A life-threatening illness that makes you recognize you want to spend the rest of your life helping other people heal. So we know that at a personal level that happens, then we know sociologically that when there are huge wars or natural disasters, what happens? People pull together, society changes, right? So there is a way in which, since the shamanic experience is part of the bedrock of what it means to be a human being, that when we get really sick, or when somebody in our family dies, or when we lose something that matters deeply to us, very often our consciousness transforms. It's not a given, but it's a possibility for us. When we are deeply wounded, that can happen. So now we face together the wounds of the earth, and so there's the possibility that this accelerating cultural shift that I've talked about over the last 500 years, which has so transformed what it means to be human, there's a possibility that that is going to lead to a true transformation of human consciousness. You know? And I like what I see in my third example, which is what young people are doing today. I like the DIY movement. I like the maker movement. There's a wonderful new book by Chris Anderson, who was the editor of Wired magazine, called Makers, the New Industrial Revolution. And his point about the maker movement, this DIY, this is a subset of the DIY movement, the DIY movement being the broader kind of, you know, just do it yourself. And the maker movement is really involved in inventing and creating stuff. But what he says, which is so really interesting, is if you think in terms of Marxist theory, he doesn't talk so much about Marxism, but I'm going to talk about it for a minute. What happens in Marxist theory? The capitalist class ends up owning the means of production. 
and therefore everybody has to work for these big companies and your labor is alienated, right? Because it doesn't belong to you anymore. But what does the maker movement do? The maker movement takes the means of production back into its own control. Get it? This is a huge deal. And as people, and, and Chris Anderson makes all kinds of examples, he gives all kinds of examples of places where people are making livings doing this, right? They figure out something they can do, something they can create. Like he talks about a furniture store in Berkeley where uh, it's all done robotically, but the point is that you can feed in exactly what you want as a consumer and a few days later pick up exactly what you want because the, the technology enables incredible differentiation of product to come out the other end of a Berkeley factory. And so there are all these examples of people taking back the means of production. And so this instinct that people want to figure out how to live without experts as an intermediary process and they want to develop these skills not only create resilience in the face of the shocks that are coming down one after another, financial, environmental, terror, whatever it is, it creates resilience. I mean, if you know how to get by in a world which is not necessarily going to give you fat pensions or, you know, you know, medical treatment or whatever it is, if you know how to get by, if you have figured out how you can survive and indeed do more than survive, that's a really big deal. And that has to do with taking back the means of production. And that's just a core dimension of this. So I think, I see in the maker movement and the DIY movement, a further acceleration of what I've been describing to you over the last 500 years, like a return from alienated labor to owning the stuff ourselves more and more and how powerful that is, and the relationship of that to what integrative health and health promotion and you know uh, functional medicine suggests to us, which is that really, at the end of the day, we can get fixed by medical care, but we can only stay healthy ourselves. And so there's a relationship between our reclaiming our health and healing and reclaiming the means of production in terms of our work life and how these things connect to each other. Am I making sense to you? And I think a little of this is obscure, but you know, that's the idea. <laughs> so, I've given you three examples. Now I want to shift a little bit to mind maps. So, I'm not convinced it matters whether you're spiritual or secular. But I do know that the maps that we carry in our heads of how we are human make a really big difference. So for example, ask yourself sometime when you have the leisure a set of questions like this. One question would be, and there's not an obvious answer to any of these questions. They could, you could pick any point of view and you'd be fine. One question is, does life have any intrinsic meaning or do you subscribe to the existential view that there is no meaning in life except what we assign to it? Now I want to ask you to think about that for a minute. Is there any intrinsic meaning 
in life for you? Or do you think it's just all random and it's just a question of what you assign to it? So let me ask for a show of hands. How many of you believe life has intrinsic meaning? How many of you believe that it's just what we assign to it? Good, good. But they're both good answers, right? But they're interesting, right? So let me ask you another question. How many of you think, not don't put your hands up yet, but how many of you think that the universe is alive and there is a deep sense of oneness in the universe? And how many of you think that the universe is dead and it's just all accident on some level? So how many for the universe is alive and has meaning? How many of you think that it's just all dead stuff and accident? All right, good. Now, I'm not surprised in this group of people that most go for the other, because this is, you know, Sophia University. This is the former Institute for Transpersonal Psychology. So there's brave people who show up here, you know, and hold for the existential view that it's just what we assign or that it's all dead stuff and it's all. And I love it. I'm, you know, I think it's really cool. So thank you for that, you know. Um, but these are important questions because they shape our view. So implicit in the answer to those questions are mind maps, right? So the mind map of a person who believes that life has a purpose is going to be different from the mind map of a person who believes there is no purpose except what we assign to it, right? They're both totally legitimate. But it has consequences for what life feels like, right? It has consequences for what life feels like. So let's look at three maps, which I think most of you are familiar with, because I asked um, I asked some of your faculty colleagues if you were. The first one, obviously, some of you are in this eco-psychology class. So you know, what is eco-psychology? It's a psychology based on ecological and psychological principles. Theodore Rozak uh, first uh, used the term in Voices of the Earth in 1992. The main concept is that the mind today is shaped by modernity, but it's naturally adopted to the natural world in which it evolved. And uh, so another primary text is E.O. Wilson and Steve Keller's Biophilia Hypothesis, which says that people have an innate emotional connection with nature. And eco-psychologists see the unspoken grief, pain, and despair in response to eco-destruction. And a third text is Joanna Macy's work in which she does grief rituals to work with us. So that's like a kind of a grief. That's, that's a mind map, right? That's like an example of a mind map. So let's take another, which I think uh, many of you are familiar with. How many of you are familiar with the Roberto Asagioli's psychosynthesis? Yeah, so it's one of the courses here, right? So psychosynthesis had a lot of influence on me in the development of the Cancer Health Program. And what I really like about it is that it's, you know, comes out of a combination of Jung and Freud. But also, uh, many of you may not know this, that uh, that Asagioli was an esotericist who studied the Bailey work. How many people know his connection to the Bailey work? Just uh, oh, quite a few. Yeah. Yeah? Mm -hmm. so, um, so the point is, he had this esoteric connection, but he made a decision, unlike Jung. Jung integrated, well, not fully, 
But Jung integrated to some degree his esoteric interest with his psychology, but he kept, he held a lot back. You know, like the Red Book wasn't published until after his death. But uh, Asajoli made a decision that he was going to keep his esoteric interest totally separate from his psychology. So he created a psychology that made no esoteric or mystical assumptions. And the beauty of it is, that in the cancer help program, I can teach it in 10 minutes. So, you know, a way of thinking about it is, he sees consciousness as a big circle, right? Divided between a lower unconscious, a middle unconscious, and an upper unconscious. There's the witness point in the center, which is connected to higher unconscious by a dotted line. And then there are sub-personalities that are spread throughout lower, middle, and upper unconscious. And uh, so most people are completely unaware of these sub-personalities. So the, the goal of psychosynthesis, useful mnemonic, is that you want to name your sub-personalities, recognize that they exist. You want to claim them, recognize that they're part of you. You want to tame them, get them to work together, and then you want to aim them. So you name them, you claim them, you tame them, you aim them. So the goal is to move these very disparate sub-personalities toward a better working relationship because very often they have extremely different agendas. And there's this beautiful thing that I sometimes do with people where you make a list of the sub-personalities, you put uh, a different one on different pieces of paper in a circle with a blank paper in the middle, and you practice stepping in and out of the different sub-personalities. So it's learning the process of identification and disidentification, and therefore becoming conscious when you're moving in and out of different subpersonalities of what's actually going on for you. So, uh, so we've talked about eco-psychology and Asajoli psychosynthesis. The third that I just want to mention, which I've spent the last nine months immersed in, is James Hillman and Thomas Moore's archetypal psychology. And again, how many of you are familiar with archetypal psychology? So quite a few, again. So um, I'm not going to... I'm totally fascinated by this. I don't agree with Hillman completely because what he did with Jung is he relativized Jung's sense of the self. For Jung, as for, with Asajoli, the self was that egg-shaped or spherical thing which contained all the subpersonalities or the archetypes, right? But for, um, but, uh, for Hillman, uh, as Christine said, Hillman was comfortable with the void. He just, the way he said it, he had two wonderful metaphors. One was that each of us is like a boarding house. And that in each of us is a boarding house, you have some characters who come out by day and play by the rules, and others who only come out by night, and some who never come out of their rooms at all. And so, here's a great example. When you fall in love with somebody, you go through that. How many people here have ever been in love, by the way? So, you know, it's actually, love is an incredibly interesting phenomenon. And actually, you know, for Freud and for Jung, uh, love was, you know, Freud said it's love and work, you know. Uh, um, uh, Jung said it was really a central issue. They, they realized what a profoundly important and paradoxical state of being love creates. But the relevance here 
is that when you really fall in love with somebody, at first it's like, oh my God, where did you come from? <laughs> it's so perfect, you know? We're so totally aligned. You must be my soulmate, you know? And all this stuff is going on, a sense of, and then, the boarding houses begin to get together. And all the different people begin to crawl out of the woodwork at different times. And all kinds of people show up that you weren't expecting. And that we're part of this sense of perfect union going on, right? And so what happens, if you're lucky, is that that love has to painfully expand to recognize the whole human being as opposed to this sense of like total oneness, which uh, rarely lasts more than two and a half years, which happens to be the amount of time that a baby needs to be born and get up to a place to be on its own. So it's well designed. So if we look at these three modern psychologies, if we look at the psychology of eco-psychology, of Asajoli psychosynthesis, and Hellman and Thomas More's archetypal psychology, we see in Hellman a polytheistic frame. He explicitly calls archetypal psychology polytheistic. Uh, we see in eco-psychology an ecological you know, paradigm. And we see uh, in Asajoli this awareness of subpersonalities. So all of them represent an openness to humanistic transpersonal frames of awareness. Now, I think that these psychologies are the future of psychology. It's a guess. I could be wrong. But I think that in terms of experiential maps that help us as individuals, as opposed to, say, behavioral psychology, or you know other psychologies that don't really deal with our experience. These three psychologies have a lot of common themes. And um, the other the other uh, framework that Hellman uses in addition to the boarding house is so interesting. Hellman was not interested in promoting the imperialism of the ego. Hillman was not interested in creating a psychology that was going to help you manage your social and emotional life better, that was going to make you a better person, that was going to reduce your suffering, that was going to, you know, uh, help you be more effective and work, all those kinds of things. My good friend Daniel Goleman, who wrote uh, Social Intelligence and Emotional Intelligence, those and Goleman's an incredibly sophisticated man, but those are self-improvement psychologies that you want to be better at managing your, your emotional intelligence, which is your internal world. You want to be better at managing your social intelligence. Similarly, Asajoli wants to help you get better. He wants you to name, claim, tame, and aim your different subpersonalities so you're more effective. Hillman is different. Hillman's is postmodern uh, psychology, where another beautiful metaphor he uses is that, that what you want to do with the archetypes is go into the jungle where the archetypes hang out and witness them. You just want to watch them. And what you want to do is to recognize that these archetypes have been 
described in a series of mythic structures. He uses the Greek mythology as his example. And that when we understand the relationship of our personal struggles to the archetypal struggles, it gives a sense of dignity and it sacralizes our personal struggle. So if we're suffering with love, or we're suffering with loss, or we're suffering with whatever we're suffering with, he doesn't want the ego to take over and figure out how to manage the love and loss better. He wants us simply to witness what's going on. And in some ways it's close to Buddhism. Although, as we were saying, there's a difference between the Buddhist void and the Western void, because the Buddhist void is generative. It's like Esajoli and Jung. There's a holism involved in, in the Buddhist void. And for, um, for Hillman, it's just a void. Yeah. Um, so, my personal point of view about Hillman, I don't know if I mentioned this already. A friend of mine once said that, that um, Hillman said, a student of Hillman's told me that Hillman said he loved Jung's psychology but not his metaphysics. And what he meant by that is he didn't like this holism, this you know, kind of Christ-centered vision at some level that Jung had. And I would say the same with Hillman. I like his psychology but not his metaphysics. His metaphysics, that it's all meaningless, you know, that it's just the void, is good for some people. I respect that it's good for some people. But for me, as a Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, yogic, Sufi. <laughs> the universe is alive. There is a um, We are here, as my colleague Gretchen Westbrook we're here to grow in wisdom and learn to love better. That's an innate force. It's not just something we assign. And that if we attune ourselves to the aliveness of the universe, that there is a sacred purpose, or if you don't like the word sacred, there is a essential meaning to this journey. And none of us have it right, and the gurus don't have it right. We're all pilgrims on this path together. And some of us, like people who've been in AA longer, can help the newbies along a little bit. But we're the buttonhole theology, right? That none of us have it right. We're all wounded. And in fact, it is not in spite of our wounds that we are able to help. In fact, our wounds are what lead us forward. So, I want to end by going back to one of the great archetypes, Carl Jung's archetype of the wounded healer. And this is, of course, as I said, it's the shamanic archetype. Dame Edith Sitwell once said of the great poet William Blake, she said, he was cracked, but it was through the crack that the light came. He was cracked, but it was through the crack that the light came. And I would suggest that for most of us, if we go deeply enough into our minds, we are all cracked. And it is through our cracks that the light can come. So that movement into our suffering, to look deeply into it. Many of you know um, the beautiful quote from Rilke, which I won't get right, but it, he talks about 
loving the questions in our lives uh, as you know unanswered things that we could not understand now even if we tried. But if we stay with them long enough, one day we will live our way into the answer. And so for me, whatever form suffering takes at this time, it's not like I'm trying to escape from it. It's like God just give me the strength to live with this and love this struggle. And in time, because it keeps changing, if you pay attention to your struggle and love your struggle, no matter how dark it seems to you, whatever part of you, because it usually feels like a dark part, someday, if we pay attention, we may live our way into the answer. And, you know, we cannot know whether we will achieve the global transformation. We cannot know whether what is true at the personal level, which is that our wounds can lead us on our personal shamanic journeys that lead us to transformation. That's true. We know that. We can't know whether the global wounds will lead us to a global transformation. We just aren't given to know that. What we can know is a few little things. We can know that in the corner of the garden where we've been planted, we can shine. Wherever it is, in that little corner of the garden, wherever it is, we can shine. We can change and nourish ourselves, we know that. We can make a difference in our families, which is actually one of the hardest things of all to do. Um, we can try to be kind and on a bad day civil to co-workers, you know, other students or stuff like that. We can try to help in our communities. We know we can do that. We know that depending on our proclivities, we can be part of one of the great global movements for peace, for justice, for health, for the environment, whatever we're drawn to. We can be part. It doesn't matter how small. We can be part. Look at what's happened with gay marriage in an unbelievably short period of time. These movements of consciousness, when they, I mean, people have been working on this for 50 years, and then it reaches a break point, and all of a sudden it shifts, you know? And, you know, you think of all the people who suffered uh, for that, and all of a sudden we find ourselves at the turning point. So we can make things better where we are. And whether or not, and this is the thing for me, whether or not we win and reach a kind of global transformation, I'm actually not sure that's going to happen. But I do like the idea of being able to tell our grandchildren where we stood and what we did, that whatever happened, that we gave it our best shot. You know? If it was going down, as Bob Dylan says, I'll be with you when the deal goes down. You know? If it goes down, I would prefer to live with hope and with a life dedicated to service, not because I know we're going to win, but because it's the most interesting way to live. It's just more interesting than cynicism and despair. And if you get into that, you know, I made a commitment a number of years ago when George Bush was president. I made a commitment that I would not let George Bush ruin my day. 
mean, it was just a basic commitment. It's like, there's so much that he can ruin in this world. He's not going to ruin my day. No matter what you put today, he's not going to ruin it. So I encourage you, when you when you feel despair about what's going down, try not to let it ruin your day. You know? Try not to live from the place where the wounds of the earth are what overwhelm you. It's just not the most interesting way to live. You can acknowledge the wounds, you can grieve the wounds, but once you've acknowledged them, once you've grieved them, what about that 500 years of progress? Wouldn't it be more interesting to be some small part of that 500 years of progress than spend your life in despair and cynicism because of the wounds of the earth? It's a choice. It's a choice in consciousness. I want to close by reading you two more poems. One is by Stanley Kunitz. He wrote this when he was almost 100. It's called The Layers. I have walked through many lives, some of them my own, and I am not who I was, though some principle of being abides from which I struggle not to stray. When I look behind, as I am compelled to look, before I can gather strength to proceed on my journey, I see the milestones dwindling toward the horizon and the slow fires trailing from the abandoned campsites over which scavenger angels wheel on heavy wings. Oh, I have made myself a tribe out of my true affections, and my tribe is scattered. How shall the heart be reconciled to its feast of losses? In a rising wind, the manic dust of my friends those who fell along the way bitterly stings my face. Yet I turn, I turn, exulting someone with my will intact to go wherever I need to go. And every stone on the road is precious to me. In my darkest night, when the moon was covered and I roamed through wreckage, a nimbus clouded voice directed me, live in the layers, not on the litter. Though I lack the art to decipher it, no doubt the next chapter in my book of transformations is already written. I am not done with my changes. And he was almost 100 years old. Here's a poem by Rilke from the Book of Hours. God talks to each of us as he creates us, then walks silently out of the night, then walks with us silently out of the night. But the words spoken to us before we start, those cloudy words are these. Send forth, send forth by your senses, Go to the very edge of your desire, invest me. Back behind the things grow as fire, so that their shadows lengthened will always and completely cover me. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Only press on 
No feeling is final. Don't let yourself be cut off from me. Nearby is that country known as life. You will recognize it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. She who reconciles the ill-matched threads of her life and weaves them gratefully into a single cloth. It's she who drives the loudmouths from the hall and clears it for a different celebration where the one guest is you. In the softness of the evening, it's you she receives. You are the partner of her loneliness, the unspeaking center of her monologues. With each disclosure, you encompass more, and she stretches beyond what limits her to hold you. Thank you very much.